So chapter 32 is where we find ourselves in the book of Genesis. If you're just joining us, we are teaching chapter by chapter, sometimes two chapters, sometimes half a chapter. But we're making our way through the book of Genesis and looking at these different uh, men and women who were um, ancient followers of the Lord, that had faith in the Lord. Um, we come to chapter 32, and I've put the title, Blessed Brokenness. You might think, well, I don't know about that. I don't know if there's ever a great time to be broken. Uh, I hope by the time we get through, you'll fully understand what I mean by that. But of course, we're talking about being broken in the presence of the Lord. This has been a process that's been going on for Jacob. I guess you could say for the last 20 years while he's been in Haran, but you probably could say for his entire life beginning in the womb when he was wrestling with his brother Esau and his twin brother. And there was a war, as the Lord said, going on in your womb. And there are going to be two nations, and they're going to fight against each other. And as brothers, they fought against each other. And Jacob is uh, he's named Hillcatcher, Supplanter. And this is the brokenness that God's going to work into his life, that he's no longer trying to get one over on people, but he learns to wait upon the Lord and to expect blessing from him. So the brokenness began when Jacob fled from his home 20 years earlier because he had deceived his father and brother and taking the family birthright, that first privilege of eldest son. Now he was a twin, but he was second born. So culturally, it was not his. Spiritually, the Lord's going to give it to him, but not the way he goes about getting it. God, if he would have just waited, God would have taken care of it and would have all worked out. But he and his flesh seeks with the advice from mom, Rebecca, to get it. So, but he has to flee his home. That's where I would say maybe the first mark we see of that brokenness beginning to be worked into his life. He has to leave home. He arrives in Haran and he meets Uncle Laban. And um, falls in love with this girl named Rachel and strikes a deal with Laban. Although it's about twice the going right rate of a, a bride price. I'll work seven years for her. He's so happy. He's so um, maybe intoxicated. I don't know. That he wakes up in the morning and he's not married to Rachel. He looks over and he rolls over and he looks into the eyes of, well, weak eyes actually, right? Is what it says, Leah. I bet there would have been, can you imagine the shock and the horror of that moment? And, um, and so he's been tricked. Imagine there was, you know, the Lord breaking him down at that moment. Um, he worked another, but he did get Rachel, the other daughter. Um, at the end of that week of marriage festivities, he works another seven years. thinking about going home. Laban says, no, name your wages. He stays for six more years, and his wages are changed how many times? Anybody remember? Ten times. Yeah, that, that's, that's easy to remember because we know what it's like to work. And to think about having your wages changed on you ten times, not for the better. That kind of stands out. I imagine there was a breaking that was beginning. The, the fractures are beginning to form in his life. He decides to leave after six years and ten wage changes because the brothers, his brother-in-laws are saying, wait a minute, Jacob has stolen everything from dad. That's not a good sounding relationship. And so he flees in secret. They get down to the mountains of uh, 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 Galid and He's there, and Laban comes after him 
with intention to do harm. God puts his hand on his chest and says, don't do anything to this man. As a matter of fact, I don't want you to say anything good or bad to him. Just zip it. And so uh, Laban lets him know, I, I was coming to do you harm. But, you know, your God said, don't do it. So I'm not going to do anything to you. Again, another fracturing of trying to bring him to this place of blessed brokenness. So he leaves, and now this is where we pick up the story. He's left to confront the reunion of his brother Esau. Does anybody remember what Esau's last words were to Jacob that were reported to him? As soon as dad dies, that guy, that little spoiled brat, he's a dead man. I'm going to kill him. And so that's what led to his flee. Now, he's, this, is the, this is where he is now. It's where he's going to finally break. I don't say completely because whoever really gets through a complete breaking at any one point in time in our life, there can be growth steps where we have. And it's going to be one of the most profound moments of his entire life that breaks him from the man that he has been because he has to face the threat and the fear of meeting up with Esau. So we begin reading in verses 1 through 5 where we see Jacob meets God. So, so Jacob went on his way, leaving the meeting with um, Laban, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, and commanded them, saying, speak thus to my what? Lord Esau. That sounds different. This is a well-crafted email, don't you think? I mean, just follow it, all right? This is not the email that he wrote in the heat of the moment and sent it off and thought, did I really send that email? I wonder if I can get, is there, is there any way to get an email back after it's been sent? This is not that email. This is the one that he wrote and put in the outbox for 20 years. He's thinking it through. And so he says, Lord Esau, thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. I don't want your stuff. I'm not coming back to get stuff. I'm not coming back to try and rule over you, Lord Esau. I am your servant. You see how it's being written here. And he says, I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. I realize things are not good, and I'm hoping that you will be gracious towards me. And so he's there. He sees this uh, camp of the angels of the Lord, which reminds us of his exit from the country. When he was going, he stopped at Bethel. And there he saw, in, you know, in a, a dream, he saw a gateway, a portal into heaven. And that staircase that led up into heaven. And the angels of God were going up and down. And it was God's way of saying to him, I am taking care of you. These angels, these messengers, they're going to tend to you. And he reiterates to him, and really for the first time speaks to him that the Abrahamic covenant was his, that it was going to be passed on to him. Now he's coming back into the land, and if Bethel called the house of God, Mahanaim means two camps, his camp, and they're, they're in a little bit of distress here, and the camp of God that's not in distress. And so this is what he names the place. It is interesting to think about angels ministering to the people of God. Now, I think two, two extremes. We make too much of it, and we don't make anything of it. 
And those seem to be the extremes. You know, some people, it's like, you know, I haven't been to your house. So if this is you, I'm just drawing from just random thoughts in my mind. Got these little angels around your house. And you're thinking, oh, angels, you know, taking care of me. That's, that's unhealthy. That is not good. It's almost like idolatrous to be thinking about that in that way. And then there's the other thing. Well, I don't think, no, I don't think that happens anymore. This is the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament. It's the Old Covenant, Troy. You know, that's what was going on back in those days. But now we've got the Holy Spirit and that's not going on. Are you sure about that? Because I've got a verse. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not, the angels, ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? That's you. That's me. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And angels are sent to be ministering to us. I don't know that I have, if, I don't know if any experience I've ever had with an angel. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. I just don't know of one. Um, but, you know, their, their testimonies down through the ages where uh, the people of God really believe that um, that was the case. It was John Wesley who for 51 years rode around uh, England on horseback in dangerous territory. Writes of an account when he was, saw two men waiting for him up the road. And right when he kind of came, they disappeared into the hedgerow waiting for him to get there. And um, he was riding by himself. And as he got real close, all of a sudden another rider on horse came up. And they passed by and the robbers never came out. He then went to say something to the guy, and he was gone. He believes that was an encounter where an angel just kind of rode along a little while with them just to put enough warning in the heart of those guys that, hey, there's two of them, not one of them. No, I mean, time will tell. But I think experiences like that, that, that is something that we can expect. I mean, the Lord says that he will do, the, do this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. But isn't it good to know that God is watching out for us. Isn't it good to know that when you leave one bad situation and you're about to head into another bad situation, that God camps with you. God dwells with you. He, he lives inside of you. And you can have an expectation that he's going to see you through your difficulties and through your storms. Where were you and what were you facing when the Lord met you? Now, you can think about your salvation experience, okay? Think about that. That's profound. But maybe think of some other, as a believer, think of other places where God showed up in your life and you had an encounter with him. Now, listen, God is with us all the time. And we can fellowship with him, and I hope you are, every day. But there are those moments in our life that stand out as key moments of God's faithfulness and his hand over your life where he's working and moving. And just as I'm even talking, I'm thinking about experiences that I have had throughout my life. And, um, you know, one of them goes back to when I was, uh, I don't know, probably eight years old. How old are you when you're in third grade? Eight? Okay, good. So not as dumb as I maybe presented myself to be there. So uh, eight years old, was supposed to get on a plane. My parents are out in Florida looking at homes to buy, we're moving out of California, flying from San Diego to Palm Springs, or where you're living is Palm Springs, and we're going back home. My grandmother lived in San Diego, and um, uh, got up that morning, and I was, a, I was a wild child. I really was. And she loved me dearly, but she was ready for me to go home. And, um, but I woke up that morning, and I said, that plane is going to crash into the side of the mountain this morning. And she's, you know, 
as you can imagine, I got corrected for saying such a terrible thing. And it was, why would you, ever, why would you say such a thing, Troy? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know. Why well, I said that, we get to the airport. Um, the plane is um, sold out. It's just a little plane. I mean, maybe 10, 15 passengers. And my sister and myself were supposed to get on there. My grandmother's ready for me to go, but my parents told my sister, don't leave your brother no matter what. I want you with him all the time. So I was supposed to get home that day to Palm Springs. I had a big, uh, you know, third grader. I was pitching that night. I wanted to get home. You know, I wanted to be a part of that. And, um, but the weight balance was such a sensitive thing. They only had enough to take a little guy like me. And I get to fly it in the cockpit. I am so excited about this. And, um, but my sister begins to dispute with I me. Mean, she's only four years older than, than me. Um, with my grandmother, and she wins, and um, I don't get on that plane. And that plane crashed into the side of the mountain, and everybody on that plane died. You know, and I can just, God was working and protecting. I, was there an angel involved there? I don't know, maybe urging my sister on to fight against me and my grandmother. Um, but uh, was there the poor lady, Arlene, um, who had to pick us up at the airport before the days of cell phone Flights 25, 35 minutes long. She, we didn't have time to call her and tell her that we didn't make the flight. And she found out that we, well, she believed we had died on, the, on that plane. So the Lord watches out. And, I, and I'm, I'm just thinking about all these different moments. Sometimes it's protection. Sometimes it's just a deeply spiritual encounter where the Lord reveals the next plan or the next experience. God wants to meet with you. He wants to meet with you. Go meet with him. Go spend some time to seek his face. With all of your heart. You know, sometimes he, it's in fear it's, that he meets with us. Or it's in our sin. Sin is a great place to meet God. I don't recommend that you go sin to do that. But God seems to be really interested when we sin. And he, he puts his attention towards it. And he speaks to us in those moments. Sometimes it's the loudest. Sometimes maybe it's the most frequently we hear his voice is in our sin. A friend of ours, Rebecca and mine's friend of ours, their son said, Mom, I don't think God ever speaks to me. She goes, well, honey, sure. You know, a desperate mom wants to help the theology of the son. Sure, he speaks to you. He speaks to you all the time. And, you know, began to give these examples. And he's like, no, God doesn't speak to me. And then the Lord put a thought in her mind and said, well, remember the other day when you went in the garage and you're getting your dad's stuff and um, you got in a lot of trouble because you got into his stuff? He goes, yeah, I remember. So, well, before you did that, did, didn't the Lord say, you know, leave that stuff alone. He goes, yeah. He goes, oh, then God speaks to me all the time, you know. And I think, I think we can relate to that, you know. God does speak to us even in our sin. Should we sin that conversations may abound? God forbid. But God will come after us in those, those spots. Or it's in loneliness. We're going to see him as a lonely man here. He's going to be all by himself. Maybe it's in desperation. But it doesn't have to be any of those things. It can just be in your quiet time with your face on the ground worshiping the Lord and you meet with him. What a beautiful thing. Well, we read in these five verses that um, they, Jacob sends the uh, messenger. It's not an email. He sends the messengers down to communicate. And we've got a map here that kind of shows just a little bit. Jacob's coming from the north, coming out of Haran. Uh, Esau's coming up from the south out of the land of Edom. And the region of Seir is kind of the mountainous region from the Dead Sea down to the Gulf. That's where he lives. And he's coming up, we're going to learn in just a moment, with 400 men to meet his brother, who has large companies and all kinds of livestock there 
um, around the Jabbok River, and that's where he's going to meet. Now, listen, Jacob had no intention of going all the way down. We're going to read later. I mean, he's going to get to about where they meet at the Jabbok River, and um, he's going to turn hard right, <laughs> and he's going to go into uh, the promised land. So that's kind of what's going on. That's kind of the geography of where they're coming together. And so he sent this to him. In verses 6 through 12, um, he not only sends a well-crafted email, he's now going to call upon the name of the Lord. He says, Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. Oh, really? Yeah. 400 men are with him. Oh, really? <laughs> That's not good. This is not a welcome home party. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies and said, we're not all going to die. You know, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. So he's just trying to manage the situation, um, and he's uh, going to call upon the Lord. But this is his next move. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm going to just count my loss. We'll divide into two camps and Hopefully only one of us will suffer. Verses 9 through 12. Then Jacob said, O God, my father. Now we don't read that very often, do we? We haven't read Jacob calling out to the Lord. But here is a beautiful prayer. And good prayers in Scripture are worth pondering. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan, so on the way 20 years earlier when I was fleeing from my brother, I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau. From the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So, a few things to just quickly pick up from this prayer. Number one, remember God's previous, previous faithfulness in your life and in the lives of other people. He's going, all right, um, I'll start with, you know, remembering that you are faithful to Abraham. And you're faithful to my father, Isaac. You, you, you've been there. You, you, you're their God. And now I'm in the same line of, of having faith. But um, I, I wonder if he pondered some of the stories that he heard of, you know, Father Abraham, who had many sons, right? And how he failed at times. He failed in Egypt. He failed before Abimelech saying, Sarah's not my my wife, that's my sister. And Lord, you blessed him when he was in a tight spot. And even my dad, Isaac, he made the same kind of mistakes with Abimelech and said that Rebecca was not his wife. Lord, you're the God who rescues my family. I, I know I'm kind of putting some other thoughts here into this, but I, these are the types of things as he ponders his father Abraham and his father Isaac, both the promises, but also the mercy and the grace that were shown in their failures because he is finally, 20 years later, having to face the failure with 400 men coming. This is a desperate moment. 
But remember God's faithfulness in your life and to your family. Think of what he's done in your family's life to your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or your grandfather or, the, or, or just throughout the histories of the church. Think of all that the church has gone through for the last 2,000 years. The persecution and the attack, the maligning, the way the scriptures have been attacked and tried to be destroyed and you know, went through the dark ages. And yet the church continues on because God is faithful to build his church. And we're living in interesting times, but you know what? That's okay because we know that the church ends victorious. The church is not going to be defeated and is not going to be snuffed out because it's God's work. We can have full faith that it's going to work out. Yeah, but things are really bad. All right, that's good. Bigger miracle is going to be needed then. That's how we look at it. You know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, that whole thing. God is going to advance his church. I'm not saying there's not things that are coming at us, but you know, don't wring your hands. God's been faithful for 2,000 years to his church. He's going to be faithful to his church. To his church, he'll be faithful. Uh, we keep on reading there in verse 10, the first part of it. Remember that God pardons. He says, I'm not, least, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies and of all the truth which you've shown your servant. So he's had, he's had revelation. I mean, we, we know some things. Go to the land and I'll bless you. You're part of the Abrahamic covenant. Pretty big deal. I mean, he says, I'm not worthy of these things. And he remembers that God pardons. A good thing to remember when you're about to have to face the consequences of your sinful actions. Don't you like the fact that God is merciful and that he is gracious? And as scripture says, and love to remind you, the Bible says that he delights in showing mercy. There might be somebody this morning that you need to show mercy to. Well, the Bible says be merciful for I am mercy, merciful. You know, I've shown you mercy. I expect you to do that. So show mercy. Be that one that's extending forgiveness. But you may not like the feeling of it. Ah, gosh, got to be merciful. I know I've got to do that. Lord, help me. Give me the right heart. Give me the right attitude. I will be merciful, but Lord, I don't want to. And you walk through it. But God says, I delight in showing mercy. It's a big difference between us and the Lord, isn't it? And so it's good to remember in your failure that God will forgive you because Satan in your own mind and conscience and even some people will come along to tell you, you're done, you're, you're a goner, there's no hope. How good it is when a brother or sister is there to stand in the midst of our failure, knowing it all and say, you're going to be all right because God's going to show you mercy. And we need to be those people that remind. Still in verse 10, he says, and you, you, you got, he remembers God's provision. I crossed over this, this uh, Jordan with a staff, and I'm coming back with all of this stuff. God's going to take care of you. It's good to, when, when, it's not only a threat of his life, it's now a threat of all of his material blessings that's there too. But God's going to take care of you. Re rehearse all that God has given to you and know that he'll be faithful. In verse 11, remember God's protection. You know, he says, you know, you said you're going to take care of me. You're the one that told me to come home. It's on you. <laughs> it's on you. I'm doing what you told me to do, Lord. So protect me in the midst of it, and the Lord is going to protect him. And then he says that he should remember God's um, promises. And he, in verse 12, goes back to that Abrahamic promise of descendants as the sand of the sea. Well, Lord, if you're going to make me have descendants as the sand of the sea, then I guess my whole family can't be wiped out. And he's just claiming the promises of God. A good prayer to remember 
and to rehearse um, in our trouble. Jacob is becoming a different man here, isn't he? I mean, have we ever heard Jacob say, I am not worthy of the least of all these mercies and all the truth that you've shown to me? No, we see him as a man who's saying, that's mine, I want it, I'm going to get it, I don't care how I do it, I'll lie, I'll cheat, I'll deceive, even, even dad. It's mine, and I'm going to get it because I deserve it. But that's not what we hear right now. The pressure and God's hand upon him is causing those fractures to open wider in his life. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves, in the, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He's going to be broken before this chapter is over. But God is going to lift him up and he's going to care for him. We move on, chap, uh, still chapter 32, verses 13 through 21. Jacob seeks to appease Esau. And I'm just going to summarize this in verses 13 through 21. He sets up three droves of animals, a total number of animals of 580. And they are sent to him in three different uh, droves. And um, as they come to him, Esau says, what is this? He goes, oh, this is a gift, Lord Esau, from servant Jacob. And that happens three different times. And verse 20, at the end of verse 20, it says, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the well-crafted email has gone out, and now the, uh, the gift has gone out to try and make things right. And sometimes a gift can help. A funny story, um, two pastors weren't getting along. One pastor was reaching out to the guy and the other guy wasn't responding. And so um, it's a true story, I know these guys both. So the one pastor said he had, he goes, I, I've had enough of it. So he sent him a, a dozen red roses. <laughs> and so the guy, guy picked the phone, he goes, what in the world are you doing with red roses? He goes, I want to talk to you, man. So, you know, sometimes just sending a little gift can be helpful. I don't, you'll probably never hear of another pastor sending another pastor 12, you know, red roses. But it worked. He got in a conversation. They worked out their problems. And so sometimes we got to do things like that. You know, some commentators kind of smite Jacob here and saying he shouldn't do this. He should have just trusted that God was going to work it out. Mm, okay, yeah, Maybe. Or, or maybe this is what God showed him to do. Um, it's not bad when you have cheated somebody to return what you've cheated. So I, I, I don't know that I would, I would fault Jacob here. Um, so anyways, this is what he does. He, he sends those three droves um, from his flock, totaling 580. So it's like, you're Lord, I'm servant, here's your stuff. I don't want you. In verses 22 through 32, Jacob becomes a, I'm just going to call it a fully broken man. Of course, we all are never uh, fully broken. We go through lessons throughout our life, but he's going to become broken. And if you put up that picture, this is where he's going to become that broken man. Broken man. It is at the Jabok, the Jabok River. Leave it up there for a little bit. So you got high canyons. you got water that's running through it. And you know what's interesting about the Jabok? It empties into the Jordan. Just remember that. The Jabok empties into the Jordan. Because what we're going to see happen here at this river is that a man by the name of Jacob at the river Jabok is going to be emptied of all his conniving and scheming and planning. God's going to drain him of all of his self-will and pride and he is going to encounter the Lord. There's a, there's a play on words that's going on in these verses. 
And, um, you know, we read, um, well, let me read the verses and then we will come back and pick up on it. But it's the words Jacob, Jabok, and wrestled. We read verse 22, and he rose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabok. He took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and the man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, so the man didn't prevail against Jacob, he touched his socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So there's a, there's a play on words in the Hebrew. You have Yaakov, that's at Yabok, and he is, wrestle is, the phrase would sound something like Yavak. So you have Jabok, you have Jacob, Jabok, and Yavak is wrestled. And so there's, there's this play on words that's going on as the author writes, and he is going to be drained of all of his strength and all of his self-will except a heart for God. And that is the beautiful brokenness that we're talking about. That is that blessedness of being broken. So he's wrestling with this man all night long. And Hosea tells us that Jacob prevailed in his struggle with the angel. But it's not Jacob's iron will that got the blessing. But it's rather his broken spirit as he wept that got the, got the blessing. So when we read that he prevailed against, he didn't, God didn't prevail against him, we're like, what? He, I mean, he's a sovereign God. Of course. Of course he's sovereign. He could have at any moment taken him out. But he limited himself and he wrestled with him all night long and then eventually touched his hip and uh, was out of joint, great pain. Uh, he's limited. But look what Hosea says. Chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. Jacob did this to Esau. And in his strength, he struggled with God. Yet he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, which was a previous experience. And there he spoke to us. Jacob prevails against God in this sense. He prevails against him. Not that he was stronger than him and he was able to wrestle him all night long. He prevails in that he became a broken man that petitioned the Lord. Here it is. You will prevail over the Lord every time you come in brokenness. The broken and contrite heart, God will not, cannot, will never despise. You want to prevail against the Lord, don't shake your fist in his face. Don't put your finger in his face. Don't start writing blogs about how God's not been faithful and you're done with Christianity. You're not going to prevail against God that way. He will wrestle with you all night long. He doesn't get tired. You can get tired. He doesn't get tired. Maybe you're, you don't understand why God hasn't shown up in your prayers or hasn't shown up in this way or that way, and you're now beginning. I think it's, it's fine to be honest with God and say, I don't understand your ways. Lord, I feel disappointed. Forgive me. I think it's fine to be honest. God can handle our honesty. But when it's just raw, my fingers in the face of God, and I challenge you like Job, you're always out of line. I am always out of line. But to be this person who is broken and now in tears you seek the blessing of God, here's the great news. You will always prevail against God. Amen. What does that mean? You're always going to find his blessing upon your life. 
He's always going to be willing to show you kindness and mercy and pardon. A broken and contrite spirit. God can't reject it because he delights in showing mercy. So it is in that sense of Jacob's brokenness that he prevails against the Lord. Not that he was somehow stronger than him. Of course, this is sovereign God that he's fighting against that has taken on a human form. And the Lord condescends to meet Jacob in this way. Verses 27 and 28. And the Lord, he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Dirty Sneaky Thief. Which is, listen, he's like, does it actually mean that? Oh, yeah. Go back and read what Esau says his name means. It's like, yeah, you, you've got the perfect name because you are a deceiver. You took what was mine, not once, but twice. And so here he is, a man whose name means supplanter, deceiver, that's about to meet the guy that he has supplanted and deceived, and he's wrestling with God to have a blessing. And God says, well, what's your name? What's your name? John Phillips writes on this, and he says, Oh, Lord, cried Jacob, you know me. I am Jacob. I am just a cheat, a liar. That was all God wanted. He simply wanted Jacob to be broken in his presence, seeing himself as he really was in himself, confessing all that he was by natural birth. I am Jacob. Now God could work. Let me tell you, when we say, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I, 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 I definitely stole that stuff. I definitely, you know, deceived him. But you know what? It wasn't his to begin with. You know, those type of statements, you, there, there might be truth to it, and you can maybe win the argument. But the reality is, when we begin to drop those statements in there like that, what we're saying is, I still had, I have a right to, to do what I did. But you can come to the place where all you can say is, I am Jacob. I am deceiver. I am the liar that was in my dad's tent. I own it completely and totally. You know, when David sinned, he didn't blame it on Bathsheba. Well, she shouldn't have been down there taking a bath. It's always cracked me up. That, I mean, in the Hebrew and English, I mean, there's different things. But Bathsheba taking the bath. And he's like, well, you know, you know she shouldn't have done that. Or Uriah should have slept. He doesn't say that. He goes, against you and you alone have I sinned. Fully owning the sin of his life. But it took him his entire life to get to this moment where he is able to say, and it's not just reciting his name, where he's speaking of his character. He says, I am Jacob. Now God is able to work in his life. Blessed brokenness. Are you afraid to be broken before the Lord? To really own the sin of your life or the striving in your life? Are you afraid to, to let go of some things because you're not sure how it's going to work out? Here's the deal. God wants to work and will work in your life. But the full measure of his blessing is going to be seen when you are broken before him. Because God is a softy for the humble heart. I mean, he can't resist it. What is it that you can't resist? Well, this is what the Lord can't resist. He can't resist it when we come in brokenness and say, I'm Jacob. I have sinned. You know, the woman that was notable, a notable sinner, 
came to a dinner that Jesus was at. He was with all these well-known religious, Simon the Pharisee was house, and they're there, and people are coming in, which was a custom of the day. And he was reclining at the table, so his feet would have been kind of going out. And she walks up to him, and she stands at his feet, and she's got a flask of oil. Her hair is down, and she's ready to to go to work. She is a broken woman that knows she needs to be forgiven. Maybe she had been forgiven previously in that day, but she's now here. And Jesus must have given her some eye communication that said, go ahead. And they make eye contact, and then she drops to her knees, begins to weep, begins to anoint his feet, and wipes his feet with her hair, which was considered a shameful thing for a woman to let her hair down. But you know what? She's done with whatever the culture has to say. His feet need to be dried. I'm going to dry them, and all I have is my hair. Simon can't stand it. Why would you let a woman like that touch you? (laughs) And the Lord receives her, and the Lord welcomes that. But look how safe she feels. Even in the midst, in the house of a guy that was sure to condemn her, but yet because Jesus was there, she was able. She was done with her wrestling. She was done with trying to find meaning or success or, or make wealth. Whatever it was, reason for her notable sin, she was done with it and she just falls at his feet. This is our Lord. It is safe to fall at the feet of Jesus so that he might be able to work in your life. It says that Jacob fought with men and God and prevailed. He prevailed over Esau. He prevailed over his dad. He prevailed over Laban. But over God? He prevailed in that sense that we already talked about, that he became a broken man that wept and the very thing that God could not resist. He could resist his strength all day long. He could resist his sin in his hard heart all day long, but not his repentance. That he can't resist. Aren't we glad that is the case? It is true at this very day, at this very moment. Are you fighting against the Lord? Are you holding tight, unwilling to give way? Be done with it. Be done with it. And here's the thing. He's wrestling with him. He wants the blessing. He eventually touches his hip, and you know he can no longer really wrestle, but all he can do now is cling to the Lord and weep. And when, I, I mean, I have no proof from this from the text, but in my mind, I can only envision Jacob clinging to the hill of this man. When he says, what's your name? Hill catcher. Ah. And it's just the Lord is using this moment in that name. And the Lord does not smite him and reject him and say, Hill catcher, let me tell you, buddy, your mom and dad were right when they named you. You're like one of the most. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, all right, got you where I want you. Now I can bless you because you're broken. The greatest thing that can ever happen to any of us is to be broken. Because if we're not broken... Jesus would put it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're never broken, if you never have the poverty of spirit, you will never have the kingdom of heaven. Salvation begins in brokenness. I am a sinner that needs to be forgiven. I am not worthy of the least of your mercies, God, or the truth that you've shown to me. I am a nobody, and I am unworthy. And when we come to the Lord in that broken state, he always meets us. There's no other way. 
It's only the way of blessed brokenness. That's the only way to the Lord. But you know what? I believe it's that poverty of spirit that should dominate our experience with God over and over and again. Like, well, that sounds negative. It's not. It is not a negative thing to be broken in the presence of the Lord. Remember that song we used to sing about being sweetly broken at the cross? It's a sweet breaking that takes place. It's where healing takes place. It's where blessing can come. We wrap it up, verses 29 through 32. Then Jacob said, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? Now, why does he say, why do you ask about my name? I just think it's, the Lord's like, you know who I am. What do you mean? You know exactly who I am. And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel did not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, so like an immemorial, not a dietary thing, but immemorial, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and the muscle shrank. You know, I believe this. All of us have to be broken. All of us. In this life, to be right with God, to receive his blessing of salvation and receive the blessing just in this life, we all have to be broken. But we don't all have to limp. We don't all have to limp. Samson, he was broken and he had to limp. He was blind for the end of his days. David sinned and was broken, but he limped along in his family for the rest of the days of his life. Daniel was a broken man. We can read his prayers. He knew about brokenness, but you know, he's not a guy that limped. He didn't have some public thing that happened in his life that God had to call him out and make a, a once kind of this, this encounter to, to reveal what was going on in his life. Jeremiah wasn't a guy like that. And we can think of a lot of people that were and were not. Joseph wasn't a guy like that. Others were like that. Some of us, Maybe we walk with the limp even now. Listen, don't be ashamed. If that's what brought you to the place of being broken before the Lord and be healed, celebrate it. But I'm just saying this. To the church of Thyatira, the Lord says, I gave you space to repent, and you did not. I'm saying take the space that's afforded to you right now to repent and get it right with the Lord Find the brokenness that all of us have to have, but we don't all have to walk with the limp. I just can't do it. I can't, I, can't, I can't be honest with myself. I can't be honest with other people. Oh, do it. You need to come. You need to come clean, and you need to pray for the Lord's blessing because if need be, he will wait a long time, but he will put that hip out of socket eventually because he loves you too much to let you go on without being blessed by him. Our God loves us, and he gives us space to get it right. Get it right, and now's our opportunity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that shows us the grace and the mercy and the patience you have with this conniver named Jacob who becomes Israel. Lord, we thank you that you have mercy and that you change our character. You change who we are. We become new creation in Christ. And if there's someone here, Lord, that needs to become that new creation, they need to come and yield to you, then we pray you would break them, you would sweetly break them right at this moment, that they would call upon you for forgiveness. 
But Lord, us as believers, maybe there's some things in our life that we've been holding on to. And we have not surrendered. May you bring us to that place of sweet surrender.